Galatians 5, 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's Word, and you may be seated. Today we begin a new series of sermons. Uh, So usually during the summer, uh, we try to pick a theme from the Bible so we can sort of go through various passages, and in the summer people are in and out, and want to make sure that every sermon makes sense on its own, and at the same time that helps you understand the whole Bible in some way. So we've done series like the songs of Scripture or the prayers of Scripture, and this summer we're going to do a series that we're calling When the Lord Makes a List. So we're going to look at the lists of Scripture. Is that exciting? The lists of Scripture. Now, some of them are great lists, right? I mean, you know some of those lists and you've meditated on them and you treasured them, they're familiar, well-studied. Others, though, are skipped over and forgotten, right? If you're doing any sort of read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan or in two years, when you get to some of those passages, you just, you kind of, you get through it, right? Well, every part of Scripture is inspired, and every part of Scripture is profitable for, our peop- for His people. So this summer, we'll consider different Old and New Testament lists and learn why each is included in Scripture and how we can benefit from each of them. Now, we are going to start strong. We're going to start with the two great lists in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh today and the next Sunday, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, these are more familiar to us, so we'll try to see if we can apply these passages better. It seemed right to me to stay on the topic of the Holy Spirit. Coming out of Pentecost Sunday, we already... Uh, preached on a passage from Galatians 5, so we're going to stay in Galatians 5 for two more weeks. But then we'll cover all sorts of lists from the Old and the New Testament. Okay, so we're focused on the works of the flesh today, and as we consider the works of the flesh, let's look at this list under four headings. First, let's identify the enemy. Identify the enemy. Secondly, let's know the enemy. Know the enemy or understand the enemy. Third, fight the enemy. And finally, fourth, defeat the enemy. Identify the enemy, know the enemy, fight the enemy, and defeat the enemy. And please pray that I don't use too many examples from Ukraine and Russia war. This seems very similar. 
The classic description of the Christian's enemies includes the world, the flesh, and the devil. You can find it in, find it in Ephesians 2, for example. This is the classic classification of who we are fighting against as Christians. And so today we're going to take one of those three, which is the flesh, and focus specifically on our battle with the flesh. So what is it? What is the flesh? In the Apostle Paul's usage, which is the book of Galatians and in other passages, in his usage, the flesh is simply our fallen sinful nature. The flesh is our fallen sinful nature. When a person becomes a Christian, they are given a new life by the Holy Spirit. That, this is what happens when you become a Christian. You express faith in Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes into your life and gives you a new life and gives you a new nature. However, our old sinful nature is still present, and it is in conflict with the new nature that we receive from Christ. In Ephesians 4, for example, the struggle is described as between the old self and the new self. Now, we got both. I have the old self that is sinful and is against God, and I now have the new self, the new nature that is fighting my sinful nature. Every true Christian exists in this internal conflict. We're battling the sinful nature with the new nature we receive from the Holy Spirit. And so here in Galatians 5, that struggle is described as a struggle between the flesh and the Spirit. Listen to John Stott. He's a British pastor and theologian. He says, The flesh stands for what we are by natural birth. The Spirit for what we become by new birth, the birth of the Spirit. And these two, the flesh and the Spirit, are in sharp opposition to each other. Now, how can we know that the flesh is at work? We can identify the flesh, we can identify our enemy by its works. Now, look at verses 19, 20, and 21. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is a pretty good list to identify the flesh at work. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, saying they're obvious. Anybody can see it. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and just so we don't think this is the whole list, right? He says, and things like these. Paul says, the works of the flesh are obvious. Now, the flesh is the old nature. It's the fallen nature. But we know it exists, and we know it's active when we see the works, when we see these sinful behaviors. Now, let me give you an illustration that describes the nature that is hidden and the expression of that nature that is obvious. There's an old baseball pitcher, Stan Williams, pitched in the 60s, for, I think, for Los Angeles and maybe Cleveland. And the story goes that he carried a list in his cap. And when people would ask him, what, what, what's this list about? He says, well, it's all the people I have to get. 
all the people he has to hit, right, when given an opportunity, anybody who broke any unwritten rule of baseball, anybody who did something that was not appropriate, he puts it on this list, that name on the list, and he's just waiting for his opportunity when he's going to face that team so he can clock him, right? And somebody asked him, well, why do you keep a list? He says, well, because I forget. I need to remember. <laughs> there, are, there are too many people to remember. There's one guy he couldn't get, just never got an opportunity when he was playing to face him. So he got him at an old-timers game. <laughs> what does this tell us? There is the nature, right? There is the, the underlying disposition. There is an underlying commitment to fulfill these unwritten rules of baseball. Revenge has to be, uh, has to be executed. And then there's the expression, right? The baseball coming at you at 95 miles an hour. The same with the flesh, right? It's the same in the Christian life. There is the expression. We see it. All these things that Paul mentions, that's the expression. But it's coming from somewhere else. The flesh is evident by its works. We can know the flesh is at work by these things. But the flesh is there. The sinful nature is there looking for opportunity to throw that fastball at someone. Now, let's look at this list. There's three different categories. First, there are works of the flesh in relation to the person themselves. So if you think about the flesh acting on you, something that is sort of limited in some way to how you live, there are five examples of self-indulgence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and then drunkenness and orgies. Now, sexual immorality means, it's a broad term, means all sexual activity outside of marriage. So you can put anything that's outside of marriage on that list. It's a broad term. Impurity denotes unnatural sex sexual activity, unnatural sexual acts. And sensuality raises the bar even higher and has a sense of shamelessness in sexual sin. Public contempt of propriety. Now, we have all those in our world today, right? You got the outside of marriage stuff that's very common. Then you have the unnatural sexual activity. And then you have the shamelessness, the public shamelessness of sexual sin. Now, that's in the sexual area. But then you have drunkenness and orgies. Now, orgy is not, this is not a sex orgy. This is just a word that means maybe an overindulgent party. Drunkenness is alcohol abuse. Orgy here is overeating, overindulging your senses, overpleasing yourself. Now you see the flesh at work here when physical appetites are unrestrained, both sexually and in other ways. So that's the self-indulgence. That's the first category. The second category is the works of the flesh in relation to God. They are idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is worship of other gods. Sorcery is manipulation of spiritual powers for your benefit. From this word sorcery, we get our English word pharmacy. So it's not, a, not a, too far of a step to make to say that this may be a, a drug-induced kind of spiritual experience or an attempt to alter spiritual reality by using drugs. And the third category of the works of the flesh has to do with relationships with others. 
We have enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I don't actually think these need to be explained, right? These are really, really clear. We all know what these are relationally. Now, it's important to include all three categories in our definition of the life in the flesh because typically we only focus on one and rationalize or ignore the others. So, for example, there are plenty of churches who clearly condemn sexual sins, as we should, absolutely, and yet are tolerant of rivalries and divisions and envy and jealousy and things like that. There are others who, by their strict asceticism, attempt to manipulate God. They fast and they pray and do vigils so that God would do what they want Him to do. What is it? It's sorcery. That's what it is. And then there are those who emphasize true worship and true doctrine and yet refuse to address overindulgence of the flesh, for example, like gluttony. Now, all these works, all of them are evidence of the life in the flesh. You cannot pick. You can't say, well, we're doing really well, we're not jealous, we're not envious, and yet we neglect other things. You have to take all of that as evidence of the flesh at work. Listen to Leon Morris, the Australian commentator. He says, life in the flesh may issue in a repulsive pandering to the more obvious forms of self-gratification. Or it may result, if the flesh is very nice flesh, in a refined, artistic, or intellectual pursuit of one's aims and desires. It may even take on a religious hue, though the religion will perforce be that acceptable to man and not subject to uncomfortable demands on the part of God. The characteristic thing is bondage to one's human nature rather than submission to the Spirit of God. As a Christian reads this list, we have to take stock of our own lives, and we have to take stock of our own churches. What is tolerated here? Is it sexual immorality? Is it rivalries? Is manipulation of God? Because all those things are expressions of the flesh. And all those things, if they exist in our church and in our lives, will tell us that we need more of the Spirit, that we need to repent, that we need to change, and we need to walk in step with the Spirit. The flesh is in opposition to the Spirit. It always is. The sinful nature is always in opposition to our new nature in Christ. And every Christian, without exception, is involved in this internal conflict between the two natures, between the two selves. The way of the flesh leads to death. The way of the Spirit leads to life. And so Paul, characteristically to him, is not mincing any words, and he says in verse 21, I warn you. Please pay attention to these passages in Scripture when the apostle says, I warn you, be warned. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is, this is serious here. He's not saying, well, there's all kinds of Christians, and you know, some are sexually immoral, some are sorcerers, some just love to divide churches, and we're all going to make it. Don't worry about it. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, 
those who do such things, and by the way, he means those who practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because those things are expressions. They're evidence of the flesh at work. Because the old nature does not belong in the kingdom of God. And anyone who lives according to the sinful nature shows that they belong in a different kingdom altogether. And if you choose to live in the kingdom in rebellion against God now, why should you expect to be in God's kingdom later? Why would you want to? His kingdom is a kingdom of the Spirit. And if you don't walk by the Spirit now, what basis do you have for expecting to be under His rule in eternity? If sin doesn't bother you now, why would you long for sinless existence? Now, I am not at all questioning that all the redeemed will be in His kingdom forever. But how do you know if someone is redeemed? You know that by the presence and activity of their new nature in Christ. So if you look at your life and all you see are the works of the flesh and it doesn't even bother you, do you have the new nature? Have you been born again? Is the Holy Spirit actually active in your life? Do you really know Jesus? Or did you just go through the motions so you can get to heaven? Because that's not what God is offering. God is offering a complete transformation of life which begins now, it begins at conversion, and it will grow until in glory you will get all of it. That's Christianity. Romans 8, verses 5 and 6 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Which one describes your life? Now, I am not saying no struggle. Because Scripture clearly tells us that every Christian will struggle internally between the two natures until we see glory. That's unavoidable. That is part of your Christian walk. But what I am saying is that there is a struggle. And there's a presence of a new nature. And there is a discontent with the old nature. And there is a repentance and, and forgiveness. And there is confession. And there's fighting against the flesh because that's what a Christian is. You go towards life even as you battle death. So that's the enemy. We identified the flesh as our enemy. Now, we identified the enemy by its obvious works. Now we need to delve deeper to understand, to know this enemy. We need to gather intelligence on our enemy to understand how the flesh operates. I, I hear, I go to Panera a lot, and, and there's a group of men there, and women. I mostly fell in with the group of men. And, and they often, there's one guy, he often asks me, he's like, why does Russia want to attack Ukraine. He just is the same question. He just doesn't understand why would Russia attack Ukraine? Why would they continue to persist in this war? And I tell him, because Russia is an empire. This is just how they think. There's an internal process. There's, a, there's something in the back of the mind of those commanders and the politicians that drives them to do this. 
It's understanding the enemy that's really important. It's knowing how it works, how decisions are made. So how does the flesh operate? What's behind these works of the flesh? Well, look at verse 17. It says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. The desires of the flesh. By the way, two other times Paul mentions desires of the flesh and passions of the flesh. It's important to see our battle with the flesh not just as our battle against the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh tell us the flesh is active. But the desires of the flesh is actually what drives those works. And that's part of what we need to understand as we read Scripture, as we read Paul's letters that talk about the flesh and the spirit, talk about this internal battle. We need to understand how the flesh works. The desires of the flesh are human desires without the guidance, oversight, or authority of God. They are untethered from God. The sinful self is a self detached from God. It's not in its proper place in relation to God. In fact, it is a God unto itself. Now, you see, we, we are created to live in relationship with God. This is, this is how we are. The physical and the spiritual realms of our existence are meant to function in harmony under God's rule. But when humanity sinned, we turned things upside down. We attempted to become independent of God. All our desires got twisted and misdirected. The flesh is full of disordered love and inordinate desire. Now, I'm going to give you some examples to, to, to give us a little bit of the practical sense of this is how it works. It's not just on the level of the works of the flesh. It's the desires of the flesh that we need to understand. So, for example, God gave us food to sustain us and for us to enjoy it. God wants us to enjoy food. He wants us to eat well. He wants us to get what we need for our bodies to function properly. Under God, we're supposed to eat delicious, healthy food and thank Him for it as an act of worship. But if we live apart from God, we have an inordinate desire for food. We use food to address our spiritual and emotional struggles. Food is not meant to do that. But because our desires are twisted, we use it that way. We eat too much because we take inordinate pleasure in it. And we even sometimes worship food, making it something that gives us meaning and joy. That's how the flesh operates. Gluttony is the work of the flesh, but underneath is the disordered love, the disordered relationship with food. The Lord wants us to have a donut and enjoy it right? And, and benefit from the sweet sugar that flows through your veins. It's a wonderful thing. But when I have three or four donuts, right, what am I doing? My desire is disordered. I'm not meant to have that many donuts. Why do I want it? Why do I keep reaching for another donut? Because I have a disordered desire. You see, food is not in the right place in my world because it's not under God's authority, and I am not under God's authority. Here's another example. Let's consider sex. Sex is a God-given desire. 
God made us with a sexual motivation, sexual drive, sexual desire. It's meant to be expressed in marriage in a relationship of trust, emotional intimacy. But apart from God, we express our sexual desire in all sorts of inappropriate ways. We have sex with multiple people, or with people of the same sex, or with people who we are not married to. We do so shamelessly, and we even build our whole identity on our sexual desire, which is why we've come up with the phrase sexual identity. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality are the works of the flesh. These are the works. But underneath are the misdirected, inordinate desires. Now, the same is true of relationships of any kind. We are created to love others. And we are created to benefit from other people's love. That's how we're made. But instead, because we are apart from God, we try to operate without God's love, and so we manipulate others into liking us. We compete with others for attention and influence. We become jealous of others, and we work to undermine them. We fight with others out of fear and, and jealousy and envy. Now, underneath all these awful behaviors are desires for praise and acceptance of others and for self-exaltation at the expense of others. And those are inordinate, misdirected desires. Let me give you an illustration from Jonathan Edwards. I am sure I've used it before. I have not been able to find a better one. Edwards uses this analogy to explain how the flesh works in relation to the Spirit of God and God's authority over it. Fire in the house is a very useful thing if it's in the proper place, right? It can give warmth and light. But when it takes over the whole house, when it goes out of bounds, when it starts happening where it's not supposed to happen, it is a terrible thing and it brings destruction. So Edwards says, it's a good servant, but a bad master. Our desires for pleasure, for food, for intimacy, for approval, for spiritual power are good desires if they are submitted to the Spirit of God. But if they are untethered from God, they bring death and destruction. That's the difference. The flesh is all those desires, untethered, disconnected from God, that are just running, running rampant and, and producing all sorts of destruction because they are not guided and they are not controlled. Now, that's what's underneath our battle with the flesh. That's the way to understand how the flesh operates. Now, how do we fight the enemy? We identified, understood the flesh. How do we fight it? And by the way, we must fight it. We must fight it. When you read a passage like that, and when you read Romans 8, for example, there are other passages uh, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, you read those passages and you realize how important this battle is. It's not an optional thing. We can't just observe it from afar. We have to enlist and we have to be part of this battle. <clears throat> John Owen, whom, whom I, I quoted last week, famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you you. There's no other option. He compared, this is Owen, he compared the soul of a Christian who's not fighting sin to a sluggard's field. When you don't attend 
to your field. All sorts of things happen, and pretty soon you don't even know where the, all the good plants, all the good crops went. It is overgrown, and all the good, good things are being choked by the weeds. If you do nothing, the flesh will control and dominate. Resolve to fight the flesh. Identify it as your enemy, understand how it operates, and then fight it. There's a forgotten biblical practice that must be brought back. It is called mortification of the flesh. Mortification of the flesh. When was the last time you studied that doctrine or practiced that discipline? But it is biblical. Romans 8.13, for example, talks about that. We have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. This is an active command. We have to actively fight against the flesh and prevent the works of the flesh in our lives and deal with the desires of the flesh in our hearts. Uh, I mentioned at the retreat, we were at Emerson and Diane's farm. Beautiful. And again, thank you. Wonderful to be there. But man, is it a lot of work. <laughs> Anywhere we went, <laughs> Emerson would just tell us all the things that either have been done, right, or need to be done, or a plan to be done next year. It's a lot of work because that's what it takes to cultivate something. Because there's all these things that are coming in. It's a wildflower meadow that Emerson has cultivated. I'm going to give all your secrets away, so maybe people come visit you more often. But I don't know if you want that, but... Emerson has planted wildflowers. Now, in my mind, wildflowers, right, they just grow. They're wild. You don't need to cultivate them. They're wildflowers, right? They just, they just happen. That is not true. Actually, it takes a lot of work to grow wildflowers. And so there's, Emerson was telling me, there's a schedule of controlled burns. You have to mow it a certain way. And, and by the way, those are, those are native species to Missouri that he, he's cultivating. Those are native things. How can it be that native wild things, right, need so much work? And all these invasive species that don't even belong here, they, you don't need to do anything, right? You don't need to do anything to cultivate those. But the wildflowers need a lot of work. That's the same in the Christian life. Our new nature in Christ which, by the way, is actually native to us. Did you know that? The new nature in Christ is your native nature. This is what you're supposed to be. This is how you were created. This new life in Christ is actually the right life. This is your life. And when the Holy Spirit gives it to you, that needs to be cultivated. But the invasive sin that's already in you, doesn't, you don't need to do anything for it. It'll just grow, and it'll just wreak havoc on your life. There is a wrong way to fight the flesh. Now, let me briefly mention it, and maybe I'll spend more time on it next week. But I, but I want you to see it in our text. Twice in our passage, in verses 18 and 23, we have a reference to the law. Okay, we're talking about flesh and spirit. What does the law have to do with it? Why does Paul mention the law twice? Here's my answer, because Paul knows that many try to fight the flesh by placing themselves under the law. So if you've heard the sermon so far, right, and you've heard about all these awful things that people can do, 
and you've heard how dangerous it is and that it leads to death, that we have to fight it, that we have to cultivate it carefully as Emerson does with these wildflowers and chestnut trees. We have to do that, right? You heard me say that. Then there's a great danger to say, okay, I'll fight it, and I'll fight it with the law. I think most of us think of that strategy first, and so it has to be objected to and changed so we can get to the right strategy. This is the wrong strategy, is to go under the law to fight the flesh. Now, the law of God is good, and we are commanded to obey it. However, the law can be misused. The law shows us what sin is, but the law has no power to defeat sin. It can identify it. It can expose it. It can even increase it sometimes. But it can't defeat it. Now, this is how it works when we try to fight the flesh under the law. We focus on the works of the flesh. And through discipline, fueled by fear and guilt, we try not to do anything on that list. So we memorize it. Okay? Sexual immorality, impurity, okay. Right? You go through the list, and you say, I'm not going to do that. I'm really going to stay away from that. I'm going to control my appetites in that. I'm only going to worship in the right way. And you go through that list, and you train yourself in your own strength to resist the works of the flesh. And we hope that if we stay under the law, and we do well, if we succeed in resisting the flesh, the works of the flesh, we will then receive God's approval, because that's how it works under the law. If I do well enough, I will stay away from sexual immorality, right? I won't eat too much. I won't drink too much. Then God will approve of me. He will love me. This is what it means to operate under the law. That's different from obeying the law. When we operate under the law, we try to get things done in our own power so that God would love us. And it never works. It just doesn't work. Legalistic churches that are committed to this life under the law and fighting the flesh under the law are full of the things on our list of the works of the flesh. Have you noticed that? The most legalistic, the most strict churches will have sexual scandals, divisions, dissensions, envy, jealousy, all those things, and will manipulate God through spiritual disciplines. All those things are there. Why? Because they're not fighting the flesh in the right way. And it doesn't work if you go at the flesh with the law. The law cannot defeat the flesh because the law does not deal with the flesh on the level of desire, which is where the power of the flesh really is. The law can only take in the... Uh, look on the outward expressions, on the evidence, on the works of the flesh, and try to deal with that. And by looking for God's approval based on our performance, we'll still keep our desires detached from Him, which is the fundamental issue to deal with. I'll probably talk more about it next week, but I don't want anybody to leave the sermon with great resolve to eliminate the works of the flesh by their own power. Please do not hear me say that. This is not at all what I'm saying. I am not telling you to go home and make a list and fight the flesh with the law. No. That is the wrong strategy. Let me save you the trouble. It doesn't work. 
So what works? What is the biblical strategy for fighting the flesh? Paul gives us two components. One, crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you see how already we're working on the level of desire here? We're not talking about the works. The works will follow, but you start at a level of desire. Paul says you have crucified the flesh because you belong to Jesus. Now, why does he use the word crucify? It's a strange choice, isn't it? Why not say kill the flesh, put to death your flesh? Why is he saying crucify? That's a Christian word, isn't it? That's a Christ word. So he wants to draw attention to Christ as we battle the flesh. Because he wants us to know that we are to deal with the flesh in a distinctly Christian, Christ-related, Christ-centered, Christ-based manner. As Jesus was crucified, so his cross must be applied to our battle with the flesh. Here's another quote from John Owen. He says, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. You cannot win the battle with the flesh without Jesus and the cross. So our strategy for fighting the flesh begins with and depends on the death of Christ on the cross. Look at Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's the false strategy. So what does God do as a good strategy, as the right strategy to help us fight the flesh? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The cross of Christ did what the law couldn't. The cross of Christ has restored our connection to God, our relationship with Him. It is something the law cannot do, but God did it by sending Jesus, who took on our flesh and reconciled that flesh to the Spirit. Jesus was sentenced to death for all the works of the flesh that we committed. But by His death... He released us from this ultimate control of the flesh by reintroducing God into our lives. Why do we have a problem with our flesh? Because it's disordered. It's disconnected from God. Our desires run amok. They're not controlled by the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus do on the cross? He brings us back to God. He reintroduces God into our lives. He puts our desires in the right place. Because He died for us, we now once again have God's approval. It is not based on our performance or fulfillment of the law or avoidance of the works of the flesh. It has already been secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now that's why Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Our desires have been reordered by Christ on the cross. We have been reattached to God through his death. So when you battle the flesh, the cross has to be right at the center. You need to remember that God loves you. 
You need to remember that you're not earning his approval. You need to remember that it's not by the law that you're accepted. You need to remember that as you battle the flesh, the Lord has already provided the remedy. And you're not under control of the flesh, and your desires are being reordered. And that's the second component. Walk by the Spirit. Two components to the biblical strategy. One, crucify the flesh. Look at it through a distinctly Christian lens. And two, walk by the Spirit, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, level of desires, isn't it? Not dealing with the works of the flesh. He's going down deep to the level of desire to address the actual issue that produces the works. He goes under the cap of the pitcher to the list, right? Doesn't stop the throwing. He actually goes to the list and deals with the revenge mechanism that exists there. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It means to submit to the Spirit's work of applying to our lives everything Christ has accomplished on our behalf on the cross and in the empty tomb. Christ has defeated the flesh in principle. The Spirit is defeating the flesh in practice. Christ has defeated the flesh in principle. The Spirit is defeating the flesh in practice. There is an internal struggle with the flesh, and so God produces internal transformation by the Spirit. And it's happening in every genuine Christian. Our inordinate desires are being recalibrated. By God Himself, by the Holy Spirit in your life, He's recalibrating your desires. Our disordered loves are being reordered. The Holy Spirit of God is reordering, changing, redirecting our passions. This is what He's doing. And as we submit to Him, we fight the flesh. The flesh loses its power as new and better desires flood your heart. Jesus gives this illustration in Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Now, what is he saying? When you do the dishes, and if you still do the dishes by hand, right, you understand the dynamic of how water and dirt work in a plate or a bowl, right? If you just wash the outside, you can leave the inside dirty. You can do that. If you put a dish in the wrong way in the, in the dishwasher, maybe some things are not going to be reached by the water. But if you focus on the inside, the outside will naturally be clean. You can't actually just clean the inside and leave the outside dirty. That's not how, how water flows. And so Jesus says, address the inside, the internal desires of the flesh, and the outside, the works of the flesh, of course they're going to get adjusted. If the desires are changed, the works will change also. And that's why, and that's next week, there's the fruit of the Spirit, which is another list. And all those things are coming out from within the Christian, from the work of the Holy Spirit deep in our hearts and in our lives. Now, I'll finish with this very briefly because I want to give you some hope. Defeat the enemy. How do we defeat the enemy? Well, we don't. 
We don't. We will fight until glory. And we will see progress by God's grace. And we will see victories. And certain battles are going to be won. And yet, the final victory is not going to happen until our Lord returns in glory. Romans 6 verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, in other words, if you are a real Christian, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If you've died with Christ and you're battling the flesh by his Holy Spirit, then you will rise with him and the flesh will be completely defeated. One day in glory, the wildflowers will grow on their own. And there will be butterflies and quail and there will be no weeds to choke your wildflowers because everything will function exactly the way it's supposed to. All creation, but you and me, we will actually function exactly the way we're supposed to. There will be no internal conflict. My whole body and soul, right, everything that I am, will actually be brought in harmony with God's design. And so when I will worship God in glory, I won't be thinking about worshiping a donut, right? It just, it's just not going to be in my mind because I will function rightly and the physical and the spiritual will be put together and heaven and earth will come together under Christ. Christ will win because he did not die and rise in vain. And the Spirit will complete his work of sanctification in your life.